Well, grab your Bibles as we head to Mark chapter 9 today, finishing off this wonderful chapter after spending four weeks together going through God's Word. And before we look at that and before we delve into God's Word today, I want to mark this Sunday. We've been doing online church now for seven months. And in that time, we have developed and produced a hundred devotionals and over 50 teaching sermons. And we continue to go through Mark's gospel as we do today. I want to simply thank you. Thank you for your encouragement to keep going, for the ever-growing desire to learn from God's word and that digging deep into God's word to find out what it says for us today. And more importantly though, I want to give God the glory, for he is good and his word indeed endures forever. He has taught us so much in the last seven months and it's thanks to God and the glory to God that we're able to do so. And so with anticipation that God is going to continue to bless us once again, we head to the word of God this week. Last week, we know that Stephen Gerrard reminded us that the ministry of Jesus is the gospel, that the good news is salvation in his name. Jesus came to this earth to die, but he didn't remain dead. He triumphantly rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And in doing so, he revealed the salvation plan of God, that through faith in Jesus, we might have a right relationship with our creator God. Sadly, we also saw the pride of the disciples, their inward looking, that they would want to know who was right, who was wrong, and who was the greatest. Their concern as being the greatest rather than glorifying the greatest of time in being Jesus, showed their wickedness and their pride within their hearts. As we continue in chapter 9 today, we're going to see how this gospel message turns into a gospel life found in Jesus and how it impacts those around us. Specifically, I hope to show that the gospel through our actions toward the unsaved and to fellow brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, speaks volumes. What we're going to find out is that we must first be right with God ourselves before we can be truly a witness for the gospel. That is going to mean a serious look at our lives, not in condemnation, but through the grace of Jesus to see where we are lacking and where we need to seek the help of God for. And so to our passage for today, and and just for a little context, Jesus has healed the boy with the unclean spirit. This is the one that the disciples couldn't do, and he healed them at the base of Mount Hermon. Along with his disciples, Jesus then leaves Mount Hermon and heads towards Galilee and towards Capernaum. Now he is still in Capernaum when we pick up in verse 38 today. John said to him, teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Uh, Here we have John, the man described as the disciple Jesus loved, yet also in Mark 3.17 is described as the son of thunder. Uh, Named as such because he had a quick temper and an ability to have a thunderous response to scenarios he disagreed with. A little after this passage in Luke 9, we see another instance where John has a thunder-like response. John seeks to destroy someone with fire from heaven because he didn't do what the Lord Jesus had asked of them to do. That is why he's the son of thunder. He wants to rain down fire on anybody that would disagree with Jesus. This guy has a temper. Now, as we look to today's passage, before we kind of get there, 
what I want you to see is a specific word. John addresses Jesus as teacher. Why is that so important? Well, John looked to Jesus for wisdom and understanding. He knew he could only find an answer in the teacher, the one who had shown them so much already, the one who had revealed the very plan of God. He was the teacher and he was the one that John was addressing. Now, here's my question. Do you see Jesus like that? Do you see him as the one who teaches and provides understanding? I may be teaching right now and preaching, but I am not the teacher. Jesus is the teacher. Matthew 7, 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Jesus is the one with the answers. We simply need to seek him and ask him and seek the understanding he provides. And Jesus faithfully will provide understanding. It's for this reason that then John asks a question, but what you'll notice is he veils it as a statement. The disciples had seen someone casting out demons using the name of Jesus. It seems that the individual was successful in doing this, something that I am sure would rile the disciples considering they had just attempted to do it and they failed in their attempt. Having seen all of this, they try then to stop this man, for he was not one of the twelve disciples. He was not following Jesus like the disciples were. What is the, the question you might be thinking here? Well, I think John is seeking approval. Did we do the right thing? Remember, Jesus has been talking about what it means to be a servant of Christ, showing humility as the key attribute. So John, lacking a bit of confidence here, states an example, veiled as a statement, to figure out whether they were right. The key issue, though, seems to be that the man in question is not a disciple, which is harking back to that question we looked at last week with Stephen Gerrard, who is the greatest? So John's question is it's not about the man casting out demons. It's about aren't we the greatest and he is not? Are we not right in stopping him doing this work? They were fixated on their positions and it was clearly being shown through their actions, their thoughts and their speech. Verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus doesn't go back over what has been done. The, the man who has cast out the demons, he, he doesn't go back to that point. You cannot change the past. Instead, he looks to the future. The disciples are not to stop this man again. The genuine servant of Jesus won't in one moment do his work and then in the next blaspheme his name. The issue, though, I would suggest, is not necessarily the action of casting out demons, but rather the use of the name of Jesus. It is said that you have power and influence over someone or something when you use their name. That is why a salesman will talk to you by name. It is why in Starbucks they will ask your name before they have taken your cup and your order. Or when you're on customer service, they'll ask you to uh, call you by name. Mr. Ferguson, would you like this? Mr. Ferguson, are you happy with the customer feedback? Mr. Ferguson, is there anything you want? We have influence over someone when we use their name. Now, we've seen this just a few sermons ago when Jesus asks a demon-possessed man his name and the man responds, Legion, for there's many demons within him. 
Jesus is showing power and influence over the man and the demons by using the name. Here in our passage, the name of Jesus was used to establish power over a demon. And now we know the name of Jesus is powerful by looking at Acts chapter 4. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name in the universe that can save. The name of Jesus is all-powerful and brings salvation. It is therefore a name that demons shudder and obey. In Matthew 7, Jesus points out that we will know true believers by their fruits. In their fruit of labour for the kingdom of God, and if their fruit is transformed lives in Jesus, they will be blessed. But if they produce bad fruit, individuals who reject Jesus or who live a a warped, uh, softer, more palatable gospel, well, Jesus tells us that those individuals will be thrown in the fire. Well, what does all this have to do with the man who is being rebuked by the disciple John? Well, Jesus is the one who judges. He will decide who is a true follower and who is an imposter. If someone is truly calling on the name of Jesus for power, they will then not blaspheme his name. That is the mark of a true disciple, to do the work of Christ and to speak the words of Christ. At 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 states, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, If an individual is not against Jesus, then they are for Jesus and with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If they are for Jesus, then the Spirit is working through them to bless the Lord Jesus through his work. I want to make sure that you have two notes of caution here. Firstly, this does not mean that everyone you perceive to be a Christian is for Jesus. There are many wolves in sheep's clothing doing great damage to the church. And the Lord Jesus knows who they are and they will be severely judged. Hear this warning in Jude 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. These people have crept into the church, but God will judge them and will judge them most severely. The second note of caution that I want to give you though is, this is not licensed then to tolerate all things at all times. There'll be times where we're gonna have to show great patience and grace towards others that would do things differently. However, we must stand firm on the word of God. We do not tolerate sin any more than Jesus would tolerate it. And how do we know if something is sinful? We go back to the word of God, for it is the final authority on all matters. So what John is is asking here is who is in the right? And what Jesus is declaring is this is not about who is in the right. This is about who is the greatest 
And that is Jesus Christ. He gets to judge. He has final authority and it's on his word. We determine what is good and bad fruit. Let's continue in verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And when you see this phrasing, truly, or truly, truly, I tell you, pay attention for what is coming next is of utmost importance. A small act like the kindness of giving a believer a cup of water in need is as good and indeed should be rewarded as the greatest act of kindness, for through it we are serving Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry explains it this way, if Christ reckons kindness to us as services to him, we ought to recognise services to him as kindness to us and to encourage them, though done by those that follow not with us. Put simply, we should not judge harshly those who would serve the kingdom of God, but are not specifically within our church family. I want to be clear here, we're talking about fellow Christians serving one another in the name of Jesus. If done in and through Jesus, well, that is goodness and kindness on display. And ultimately, believers in need should be helped, for we are all in Christ. It might be a glass of water, it might not be particularly groundbreaking, but it's helping all the same. And so Jesus declares that if you are working for Jesus, truly a believer in Jesus, even the smallest act of kindness will deserve a reward in the eternal heaven, the eternal home of the believer with our heavenly Father. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now Jesus contrasts that small act of kindness with the most deadly act, causing a young believer to sin. Now young or or little ones isn't referring to an earthly age and stage, rather to our faith age. It is most despicable to lead a new believer in Christ away from doing good and towards sin. The picture that Jesus paints here is of a millstone used by donkeys to grind down grain. It would be hung around that person's neck and they would be thrown into the sea. There's no way of surviving and no way of getting out of the punishment. Jesus judges severely the tempter or the cause of sin and those who would lead others to do so. We're not necessarily talking about, I would say, squabbles and arguments. The thrust of Jesus' message here is that of deadly punishment for deadly sin. It is causing new believers to question their faith, to sin in a way that they'll end up rejecting Jesus and his word. Jesus is ultimately showing a high level of protection for those young in faith. However, I would say that Jesus is now going further, not just into the actions that would cause others to sin, but to the actions that would cause ourselves to sin. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
Notice that Jesus takes a simple statement, a veiled question, by the Son of Thunder as a great teaching moment on sin and temptations. This wasn't the answer that I think John was expecting. He wanted to hear yes or no based on whether they had done the right thing. But Jesus takes this moment and brings scripture and uses it as a teaching moment. Now, is anything that causes us to sin, what we're being taught here, is that we must rid ourselves of it. We're not to literally mutilate ourselves here. This is an imagery that Jesus is using. If it, take, if it takes you to sin, then we are to get rid of it. We're to cut it out of our life. We're a new creation in Christ, but the old will try and pull us back. They will tempt us to do the things contrary to the word of God, and therefore we must cut it out. In explaining this, Jesus gives two choices. You have eternal life rewarded, entering into the new life, although your earthly life is barely intact. You've run the course, you've got rid of everything that's caused you to sin, and you focus on Jesus, and you almost fall into heaven, barely alive, but you have that eternal life reward. Or you go to hell, having refused to rid yourself of temptations and sin, and refused to pluck anything out of your life that would take you away from Jesus. And I want you to notice that there is two aspects of hell that Jesus refers to. The first is the worm that does not die. This is the worm of conscience. It's describing an inner turmoil of knowing that you've done wrong, knowing you've refused to repent from it, and it's an inner turmoil that will never die and never go away. Secondly, there's a fire that is never quenched. It's an outer turmoil. It's a place so evil, so hot, so fiery, that being there for one more minute is unbearable. What Jesus is saying here is you have life, and a reward, or you have death, an inner and outer turmoil that will never end. Now, when we put it in that way, I think it's crazy that we would hold on to things that would cause us to sin or cause others to sin. We should be hearing the warning of Paul in Romans 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. We are to limit our earthly lives, our earthly perspective. We are to sacrifice and rid of ourselves anything that would cause sin for our focus is on the eternal reward on Jesus. And therefore we happily, contently get rid of this earthly issue so that we gain the eternal issue. Uh, just as an example, it's quite funny actually, as I was uh, writing this sermon out, I met an individual who said that for, for many years they've never had a clean license. They, they have a, a habit of speeding and they have essentially had points nearly every single year of their driving life. And as just a kind of funny quip, we mentioned that the car they drove was particularly fast and was known for being able to be driven fast. Now, we laughed because actually what Jesus is teaching in this passage is it's causing you to sin so it's time to get rid of it. It's time to go for that 25 year old car that can't get above 50 miles an hour so you won't speed. Now we laughed and joked about that but there is a serious point here. If something is causing you to sin, causing you to wander away from Jesus, it doesn't matter how big it is, how fantastic it is, how great you enjoy it, you must get rid of it so that you will enter heaven, yes, lame, yes, with very little of your earthly life 
left, but you're still going to get into heaven because you've run the course for Jesus Christ, not for self-gain. That was just a, a little aside. Let's go to verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in your lives and be at peace with one another. So what of this phrase, everyone will be salted with fire? It would suggest that believers in Christ will be persecuted or to go through some form of trial. Their life for Jesus will be seasoned with times of hardship and times of struggle and pain. However, the believer must focus on that prize laid before them, that eternal life with the Creator God, and focus on that, not focus on the earthly trial. Now, the earthly trial might be removing something that caused you sin or might be persecution because you follow Jesus. But the focus should not be on the trial or the persecution. The focus should be on the eternal reward of Jesus Christ. Now, I've said time and time again through this pandemic period, our focus is not on COVID-19 and it's not on whether we should be back at the building or should be still online. Our focus is on the eternal reward of Jesus Christ and everlasting life in his name. Our chat, our discussion, our, our blogs, our social media should not be full of what the world wants, but full of Jesus, because that is our focus and that is our answer. But these last two verses don't seem to fit with the previous, do they? So we have to do that little bit of digging to figure out what they're saying. When the sacrificial system was implemented in the Old Testament by God, he gave very specific instructions to Moses. I want you to note Leviticus 2.13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offering, you shall offer salt. All sacrifices and offerings to God were salted. In some way, Jesus is showing us that we are an offering to God, that we are a living sacrifice and we should be salted. But what is this salt that Jesus is referring to? Well, look at the, the last few verses, the last few words of verse 50. We are to have salt that brings about peace with one another, which is another way to say that we are to show grace towards one another. Remember, this is John, who's the greatest? Who should be doing that? Shouldn't we get to do that? To live at peace with one another is to show grace towards one another. The issue is, though, if we lose saltiness, or in other words, we no longer seek grace in our lives and through our lives, then what use are we? John has demanded that someone not do something. Moments before that, he argued as to who was the greatest. Moments before that, he argued uh, with those around him and were unable to do the work of Christ. The grace of Jesus was no longer being sought in their lives and no longer being practiced. The disciples were effectively useless over this journey, for they sought themselves rather than the grace of Jesus. So what we're learning here is if we don't seek Jesus, if we don't seek grace towards one another, if we don't seek the eternal reward, we are useless witnesses for the gospel because we're not preaching Jesus. We're preaching ourselves. We're preaching something that means nothing. Now, as I wrap up this passage today and come towards the end of chapter 9, what we're seeing is Jesus uses the arrogance of John to teach a valuable lesson, that we must live a life of grace, removing things that would tempt us to sin, and all for the sake of glory in Jesus' name. The question I have now is, how do we apply this practically to our lives this week? And so I've just got a few things that I would humbly suggest. First of all, and then I'm going to be bold and blunt here, get over yourselves. 
That's right, I said, get over yourself. Do you see that John's question had nothing to do with the kingdom of Jesus? Rather, it had everything to do with whether he thought he was right or not, and whether he was the best or not. It was a self-seeking question, and the response of Jesus was clear. Get over yourself. It is not about you, but it's about the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John 3.30 we read, he must increase, but I must decrease. And do you see what you are to do? You are to decrease. It is not about you, not about your ideals, not about your dreams, not about your opinions, not about whether you think you're right or not. It is about Jesus. And what do we do with Jesus? We have him increase in our lives. So with all brotherly love that I can muster up, I want to say this, get over yourself and let Christ Jesus increase in your life. A.W. Tozer said this, God wants the whole person and he will not rest until he gets us in entirety. No part of man will do. Let go of yourself, let go of that self-seeking mindset this week and get your whole life in Jesus. Because I promise you, it will truly ignite in you the wonderful truth that Jesus saves sinners. He doesn't want a part of your life. He wants all of it. And so you need to get over yourself and focus on Jesus. And the second thing I would like to suggest is that we need to take a good look at our lives. Jesus clearly shows us that we need to be on guard to the things that will cause us to sin. We need to take a good look at our lives and see where we have become complacent, where we're letting the devil win by enticing us to sin. I was recently challenged by a couple of guys online by my routine first thing in the morning. I instinctively reach for my phone, I, I scan through social media, I get the latest news and ultimately I'm impacted by it. Often this means I start the day with the news or, or Facebook or the countless emails that I seem to get overnight. And I need to then start my day based on what I read because I need to think about the answer to the email or to the post I need to write. I need to cut this routine though because I am tempted to sin. I'm tempted to get angry. I'm tempted to start the day in my own ability. And so for the sake of my eternal reward in Christ Jesus, I need to live counterculturally and not wake up and reach for my phone, but wake up and reach for my Bible. For the last couple of days, I've been doing that. And, I, and I've got to be honest, I feel enriched by it that I'm starting with the words of God rather than the words of mortal man on social media and, and whatever is the latest craze. We need to live counterculturally and seek Jesus first, not Facebook. What is it for you though? Is it how you use your finances? Is it the car you drive? Is it the friend that entices you to swear? Is it a news app? Is it a TV program? What is enticing you to sin or removing the ability or the desire to do good? Because it's time to take a good look at your life and cut out the things that cause you to sin. Choose life in Jesus, not death in temptation. John Piper famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Be satisfied in Jesus. Get rid of anything that tempts you to not be. And I want you to reach out to us, send us an email or a message so that we can be praying for you as you cut those things out in your life. 
I remember early in our marriage, we uh, cut out TV. We got rid of our TV for a year so that we could focus on developing our marriage. And we sent a message to a couple of folks, pray for us as we make this choice. We want to pray for you as you cut out, get rid of those things that entice you to sin or, or remove the desire to do good. And by the power of prayer through Jesus Christ and his word, we pray that you would be focused on Jesus and head to that eternal reward. And that leads me to my third and final point. We need to refocus on Jesus. I guarantee you when you start looking at your life, there's going to be several things you're going to get rid of, several things that you're going to cut out of because we're all sinful and we all slip into complacency. But what do we do with the void that is left? Well, simply Jesus. Listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now know him, you see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you see that? That when you give up sin, you gain the joy that cannot be expressed. It's joy inexpressible. You can't explain it. It is so joyful, so hopeful, so amazing. You don't even know how to explain it. When you give up yourself, you save your soul. And I can't really say this enough and more clearly. Jesus brings joy, salvation from sin, hope for eternity, strength for hardship, might for the battle. When you have the void that is left after you've cut out the sin, fill it with Jesus and you will be overflowing with him. The disciples were arguing over who was the greatest, who should do the work of Jesus. Well, the resounding answer of Jesus is this. Get over yourselves. Get rid of that grimy, ugly sin and refocus on me, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And our prayer at Lincoln Baptist is that you would fully do that right now. You wouldn't delay, that you would sit down with your spouse, with your family, with your friends, or just even on your own and go, do you know what? I am gonna get serious about Jesus. I'm gonna get rid of everything that will not allow me to do that. And I'm gonna fill that void with the word of God. And as I do so, I will be filled with joy, with salvation, with hope, with strength, and with might. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that even through the sinful actions of John and the disciples, we can learn the truth of your word. We can learn what it means to live life to the full with great joy. Father, I pray for everybody hearing this message today, that as they remove the sin and the things that entice out of their lives, that you would fill their lives with the joy inexpressible of knowing Jesus. For Father, we are all for Jesus, all for you, his glory, all for his majesty, all for his authority, all for his power, his might, his hope and his joy. And so Father, help us this week, not just be knowledgeable Christians, but be truly a witness for the gospel as we live it out in our own lives. Strengthen us, Father, as we seek you more and more this week. We pray this in your glorious and precious name. Amen.